Welcome to Ask AI, the podcast that brings you insightful interviews and news from the world of Canadian artificial intelligence. This episode is sponsored by Microsoft Canada. Microsoft is committed to building trusted and responsible AI systems. To learn more, go to microsoft.com AI and check out their free AI business school to start building intelligence into your solutions today. We're also sponsored by Cinchi, the global leader in data fabric technology. Visit Cinchi.com to learn how to eliminate integration and turbocharge your AI transformation. Hey there to all of you AI enthusiasts. My name is Jackson Kahn and I am the host of the Ask AI podcast. Very excited to be bringing another episode to you today. Also a reminder that we are doing team check-ins. So if you're listening to the podcast and you'd like to get your team featured, we're very happy to do a check-in with you to profile a bit about you, your company, your organization. So give us a shout at info at askai.org and we'd be very happy to contact you about that. So today we're very happy to have with us Anna Kazantseva. She is a research officer at the National Research Council of Canada, where she is part of the Indigenous Languages Technology Project within the Digital Technologies Institute. Anna works in the area of natural language processing, subfield of artificial intelligence that focuses on facilitating interactions between machines and human languages. Anna first became interested in preserving Indigenous languages as a master's student, and she continued that research as a PhD student at the University of Ottawa. Welcome to Ask AI, Anna. Thank you, Jax. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here. Perfect. We're very happy to have you. And to start off, I'd love to just dive into your personal journey into artificial intelligence. And so wondering, first off, how did you get involved with AI and, and what was your path to, to AI? Uh, it was a little bit circuitous and accidental, actually. I originally came to Canada to grad school intending to work on programming languages, but I took a course in natural language processing and I just, I liked it so much that I switched the topic of my then master's thesis and then I continued, continued on to PhD. That's fantastic. And so from your PhD, where, where did you move on to next? For my PhD, actually, as well as for my master's, my topic was a bit different because I was working on processing literature. Mm -hmm. It was a while ago, about 2010, and the computational methods that were available for technical texts or literature were, they were not the same for literature that was much less available. Uh, so I worked on short stories and novels. And then in 2015, I was hired by the, I joined the NRC. Okay, really interesting. And so you, you mentioned that your graduate studies involve processing literary works. Is there anything specifically that evolved in the, in the context of machine learning AI? Yes, although it was a little bit, um, the methods were a little bit different um, mm -hmm. than, you know, than what I use today. Uh, but definitely, you know, it was um, AI. So for my, I basically in both my master's and my PhD, I was interested in how to make, because I like books and I like to read. So I was interested in how to make literature as accessible and as easy to search for and as easy to use electronically as say news were. Uh, so for my masters, I worked on kind of helping the reader decide before reading a story, whether it's a story that is likely to interest them or not. And then for my PhD, it was a bit more technical. I was working on how to kind of automatically determine the structure of novels. 
of chapters and novels, kind of make an um, automatic outline with a view of maybe later creating summaries or somehow processing it further. I always find that kind of work around summarization or, or highlighting to be extremely interesting because there's so much information out there. And I think a lot of times we're, we're desperate to, to get a sense of it rather than to, you know, have to sift, sift through everything. So it's really, really interesting. And specifically on natural language processing, was there a part of that that you found particularly fascinating? Uh, yes, I always have found it fascinating and, you know, uh, there's a lot of interesting things and there's so many new technologies now that it's like being in a candy shop, really. But I think for me, what I always liked best, one is working with language. I love the fabric of language. I love seeing how people's feelings and thoughts can be expressed in language. And um, it's really fascinating to see how it can be manipulated, you know, to manipulate, say, public opinion. So I like language itself, but I also really like the engineering aspect of natural language processing of NLP, because you can just build things and try things very easily. And uh, I, I just think it's really interesting. How they do. There's so many different applications of it. I'm always really fascinated by what it can do. And, and particularly from, from what I understand about your background, I'm, I'm really interested because I haven't I haven't heard anything about this before, but I'm interested to learn about the Indigenous Languages Technology Project and to understand more about it and, and potentially what technologies you've applied there specifically. Okay, well, the Indigenous uh, Languages Project is probably my favorite topic because I've been working on it for the last few years, except I was uh, on the maternity leave for a little bit. Uh, but the project, it initially, we started kind of the makings of the projects were internal to the NRC and just internal almost to our two text processing teams when we were talking and just kind of thinking that we work with language and we work with many languages spoken in other countries. Like we have work processing Arabic and Chinese and Europe, obviously French a lot and other European languages. But then we were just kind of thinking, well, there's so many other indigenous languages spoken in Canada. And at that time, we had no idea really how many. Can we do something for those languages? And uh, the internal management approved that project to go further. And in the end, in 2017, Canadian Heritage, they wanted to work with us and they wanted us to do further research. The goal of the project has been always kind of to see what the indigenous communities and what the people who do language revitalization, what they think would be helpful for them and kind of work along those lines. So although I still, you know, it is the most important principle, but it, in practice, uh, the languages are so different. Depending on who is counting, there's between 50 and 90 languages, actually depending on what you count as a language versus dialect. So there's many languages and they're extremely diverse. It's not like you know, we cannot speak of them uniformly because the languages spoken on the West Coast in BC are so vastly different from Inuktitut spoken in Nunavut or from Mi'kmaq spoken in the East that, you know, we cannot use the same technologies, but the languages also differ vastly in terms of the number of speakers, of how large, the, how active the language revitalization 
communities for that particular nation. So different people need different things. And this resulted that the project is kind of composed of rather many almost seemingly unrelated parts, but it's just because, you know, different communities um, need different things. So we also, we have tried to involve indigenous experts and um, teachers and learners, and so that their voices would be heard and their opinions would be important. And um, it kind of worked in several ways. Uh, first of all, I think in every project that we have worked in, there's an indigenous person or several involved guiding us. But except for that, we also gave funding to several communities to specifically work on creating, usually it was various archiving and training specialists in the community to archive linguistic material. So in some communities, uh, they would record the elders, uh, sometimes audio, sometimes video. In others, uh, people were working on transcribing uh, the audio or video because it has to be done in a fairly particular way for this to be maximally useful for the future and accessible to, as well, machine learning methods. Yeah, so kind of going along those lines. Well, there's, there's so many aspects of that, that that sound so fascinating. One one of the parts that I'm most interested in is, is definitely around, you know, the diversity of languages. Um, I think you mentioned some some very large uh, number of, of the number of languages are my, my understanding where there are dozens or even hundreds. And I also understand that, you know, in terms of languages being endangered, there are many, many languages that are endangered or of even potentially being lost. Is there any work as part of the project or, or any thoughts on you know, how important it is to protect those languages? Well, I, of course, think it's extremely important to protect those languages. I think all but three lang indigenous languages in Canada are considered endangered, and the three are Inuktitut, Cree, and Ojibwe, just because there's a larger number of speakers. But it does not mean that those, lang that those languages still need support you know in terms of teaching and also in terms of and that was one of the goals of our project actually that i forgot to say it's to make indigenous languages in canada as easy to use on your computer or on your mobile device as it is easy to use english or french um, or other languages uh, so in terms of preservation and revitalization I think, first of all, it's important because the, commu the indigenous communities uh, think that it's really important. It's a huge part of cultural heritage. And, you know, sometimes I, my work, my own research, I've done, I focused mostly on Mohawk. And, um, you know, there was a moment when I was learning the language. I never, you know, I never became fluent. I, I never got as far as I would like. But there were times when I, it would bring tears to my eyes because uh, of the structure of the language, because it encodes, it focuses so much on who is related to who, who is doing what to who. And um, that I just, like, it's so, you know, it's so different. It's so much about relationships and community and if the language is lost, then all of that is lost and a lot more is lost. So I certainly think it's extremely important to, to preserve the languages and to support them. And, you know, as an immigrant, I'm an immigrant to Canada. 
as well, it's it's so interesting when you go places and you see signs in an indigenous language. And at some point, my daughter was asking me, mom, can I take a lesson in Sinchofen, which is a local language here um, where we live in Sanich, BC, but she couldn't because uh, although there is a school, it's very small. And of course the priority is given to the indigenous families and there's never enough funding. So um, I just, I think it would be great if we all could learn more about the languages that were spoken where we live for literally thousands of years. It would be so amazing. I, de- I definitely agree. And, and hopefully projects like this can, can help us. I, I was also interested to, to hear, um, you mentioned you were directly involving some indigenous elders um, and different members of communities in, in that process, in, in the project. Could you t- detail a bit more about that and, and maybe also speak to how, how this project could, could help reconciliation as a whole? Well, with the elders, you know, I have, it, it's less frequently that we meet directly with elders, but we usually more often work with somebody younger from the community who consults the elders on a regular basis. Uh, So it's usually done like this. And, you know, in many communities, the elders who are fluent speakers that quite often, you know, past 60 or even older and their, their, their time and attention is extremely sought after because there's not many people left speaking the language. So basically we don't want to waste that time. So the community decides how, how, you know, how to, how to use that time in the best available uh, way possible. But in several of our, for example, in my work in Mohawk, the person that I'm working with, he's regularly consulting uh, several elders in his community when he's in doubt about how certain things should be. Uh, We work on a verb conjugator. So he's consulting about how a particular verb needs to be conjugated. In many different communities, people worked on recording elders, recording their stories, and as well specifically recording the linguistic material and making it available. A little bit in a little bit of a different vein, this is not directly working with elders, part of our project is on making available recordings, recordings that already exist, making them available, because it's kind of counterintuitive, but there's a lot of recordings for example a cbc at some point cbc at some point had programming in inuktitut so there was a lot of recordings that were there but it's quite expensive and difficult to process audio because basically you need to listen for hours and hours and you have to specifically find the part that you need so part of our project is on it's not really full-blown speech recognition because that will take you know longer it's, it's quite difficult and ambitious but it is indexing of those inuktitut recordings and kind of try keyword search, basically. It's imperfect, but it's better than nothing. And it's towards making those recordings available. Another part of the project about availability of recordings is in quite often when people are learning a language, uh, especially in an online course, and now especially during the pandemic, it would be really helpful to hear how something is pronounced. And again, in many communities, uh, there's available recordings and text, but you know, if you're reading a story and you're listening to a recording, it helps, but it's not as nice as if you are 
looking on your screen and the story that the, there's a running text and the story is spoken and each spoken word is highlighted. So we have a technology like that. And the best part about both of those technologies, especially the, the later, which we call read-alongs, that it scales very nicely to new languages. So we've done it, oh, I think we've done it definitely for over 15 languages and possibly even more. The keyword search is more challenging and it requires more data. So I think we've only done it for Inuktitut and Cree and hoping to, uh, in the future, if we have funding available to extend it further. I'm just so fascinated to learn about sort of all, all the different parts of this. Um, and and, and there's, there's so much to discuss. Um, another curiosity I have is is that often, you know, we, we consider language is critically important, but that a lot of, you know, we also know that a lot of human communication, even in oral history, can be, can be non-verbal. You know, it, it can be about facial gestures and hand movements and and things like that. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if, if that's encapsulated within, within the project as well and, and, and if there's any consideration of that than the project. You know, for our, in our, for, for now, in our project, unfortunately, we have not considered it just because, just because of uh, resources, basically. And, uh, okay. you know, there's so many languages that we have not even been able to work on. You know, the vast majority, we've really worked on a small part of them. Uh, but also, I think generally, the state of um, the art in NLP is such that Nonverbal communication, there is some work and it's very fascinating, but it's not quite, you know, it's not quite as robust as language, uh, as say text processing is. So it's um, perhaps a little bit early to use it mm-hmm. right now, because also, you know, for the indigenous languages in Canada in particular, time is of the essence. So we always it's important to do what will help and not what is only a cool research project. So we kind of, you know, whenever in doubt, we decided like that, unfortunately, but it would be very interesting um, to work on it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know or even necessarily think it might, but I was just, I was just curious. I I do think that, you know, with, with all the other applications of, of AI, you know, in terms of facial recognition and gesture tracking and things like that, I thought, you know, there might be some applications who knows, maybe you'll, be able to get able to get more funding for the project and 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 gather that uh, that information as well. I wanted to ask you too. So you know, there's all this this great data, this, this tracking of languages, and more. And and I'm wondering what you might think about the future prospects of of your work and and projects like this. Is it possible that they could contribute to some indigenous languages making making a bit of a comeback within society and and even to you know kind of grow or or allow that language to evolve even more. You know, I think, you know, it's not very flattering to my ego or think most of our egos, but I think really, you know, this uh, language revitalization as a process, technology is only a small marginal part of it. And uh, and we realize it. It really, what really matters is uh, how the languages are supported and funded in the communities, uh, how well immersion schools are supported and funded and how well the, the learners are funded because it's a very, you know, learning an indigenous language when you were born, even if it's your national language, but you were born as an Anglophone or Francophone, 
it is a very daunting task because the structure of the language is quite different. All of them are quite different from English or French. So basically, most of the most of it will be determined by you know not by technology but by other things. But I think technology can help once people already have a little bit of the language, and then maybe it will help them you know type more easily or read more easily or write more easily because when you're struggling with a new language that's when technology really can be helpful as well i think it can certainly have a place creating curriculum materials and creating teaching materials which as well it's a it's quite difficult for many teachers now we've been told because uh, there's not many teachers and they're involved in the classroom but creating curriculum materials is a very uh, time-consuming and extremely important work as well. And here, technology, I think it could play a role. I think it would be best, it would be really ideal if the technology was handed, you know, if it was either developed by the communities or handed down to, you know, hand, given to the communities to their ownership so that they can decide what they, you know, how they use it, what they do. And it's been as well a guiding principle of our project. So uh, for now, we don't know if the project will be uh, refunded because unfortunately the funding actually has run out in 2020. So now we're working only within the NRC. NRC is continuing the project internally, but we don't know for how long. So right now we're mostly working on releasing everything we've done as open source and making it easier to use so that other people, communities or researchers can pick it up and carry it on. But I think it would definitely be, um, it would be good if we could continue working on this area because, you know, it took a while to ramp up. It would be nice not to lose the momentum. I think so too. I mean, I think there's a lot of exciting prospects of, of what could come from it. I, mean, I guess I'm wondering as well, like how broader government initiatives might might impact the work. I, I know there was recently an Indigenous Languages Act that was passed. Has that had any impact? You know, it hadn't had, it's, a, it's great that the act was passed, but it hadn't had much impact on our mm. work, just mostly because the project as I said, you know, it finished in March 2020 and the Indigenous Languages Act was passed, I believe, in the fall of 2019. So we just, you know, one the project preceded the act, basically. But, uh, you know, now that the act is in place, you know, one would hope that there will be measures and funding initiatives and kind of consistent effort to support Indigenous languages in Canada. I see. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, hopefully, hopefully there's additional policy that can help support this initiative as well. One thing I'm curious about, in, in addition to that, is and I imagine some of this work has potentially been seen by other countries who, who want to do some work around the preservation of, of indigenous languages, maybe applying technology to that pursuit. Have, have you seen your work impact some of the work going on in other countries or, or even vice versa? You know, it's still a little early to say, you know, there's definitely a lot of cross-pollination and for sure it's surprising how international the language preservation community is. Uh, there's a biennial conference that usually happens in Hawaii um, and the, I, I forget the name, I think it's the conference, International Conference on, on Language Preservation 
and something else, but it's it's kind of the big event that people who, who are in this field go to. Uh, so we've definitely had some really interesting discussions and conversations. We have, I don't know per se that, you know, anybody's using our software yet, but as well, you know, our software has not been released that long ago. So it's quite possible that, but I think ideas, you know, ideas for, in particular for this project, I think how the project was structured and the fact that, you know, it was the Canadian government that gave this funding for three years. uh, I think that as well had kind of, it picked interest and people were um, influenced by that in, in other countries. That kind of, that's the way to do it, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely excited to see, you know, what, what, what may continue to happen there. As you mentioned, there, there's some early collaboration, some early influence, but um, hopefully, hopefully that will only grow over time. And, 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 and more broadly, so thinking about some of the common tech that people are using around the world, things like smart, smart speakers, uh, like let's say Alexa or Google Home, in, in the context of, of language and in the work that you're doing, do those kind of devices play a role at all? Or are you ever making use of them? Um, for now, only small use, and I'll elaborate, but in the long run, it would actually be, you know, such devices would actually be a very good avenue for research like this. And the reason is that indigenous languages in Canada in particular, they have oral tradition of several thousand years, but the written tradition is quite recent, usually less than a hundred years or about a hundred years. So it would be only natural to work with speech and not with text. Unfortunately, working with speech is technically, it's not even necessarily that it's more challenging, but it is more data intensive. intensive. And one of the big challenges we've had in this project is extreme data scarcity in terms of, you know, I said that there are recordings. Yes, there are recordings, but to train, you know, a good uh, kind of state of the art uh, speech recognizer, you probably need about a thousand hours or several thousand hours of recordings. And for, I don't know of any indigenous language in Canada that has that amount of data or even close to it. Um, However, as I said, we've started working on speech recognition side with audio segmenting and audio indexing. And right now, and also we've started working on speech synthesis. Uh, So if you have text, how to pronounce it, it is more experimental part of our project, just because it's more challenging. But my colleague, Aidan Pine, he's working on synthesizing audio for several, for several languages in Canada. And he's tried, you know, he has some promising results for Mohawk in particular. And he's also working on BC, on at least one BC language, which is more challenging for speech synthesis because the phonological inventory is so, it's quite quite big and quite particular so maybe eventually but you know it's kind of our uh, maybe ideally that's our goal in in several in several years in a good number of years unfortunately well yeah that, that's that's kind of where my mind jumps to next is you know yeah in, in five ten years what what could that future look like you know is it possible that in the context of language communication maybe we'll even have you know like a universal communicator almost like in star trek I know even, and I'm sure you, you've seen or heard of some of these, these advancements, but there's like the, I think the Skype integration that can like live translate 
I'd even seen people holding up like Google Translate in between them and speaking into it. And then it speaks out back out to the other person, their respective languages. And any thoughts on what, what might be better or more available in five to 10 years? You know, I'm not usually very good at prophesizing, but, you know, without a, so I saw maybe wrong, but without a doubt, just the advance of language technology for speech and text in the last 10 years, it has been staggering. You know, I, I, maybe five, 10 years is a little bit of a short horizon, but maybe in a few more years, I think, you know, the speech component of communication devices it probably is not going to get to universal communicator but i imagine it will be pretty good but what i think we still lack in terms of technology is the reasoning part because right now if you look at even devices you know like alexa and siri and you know that translation on the fly translation you know you can ask factual things about that can be mined from a data set, uh, but you cannot ask, you know, even with robots, you cannot ask to reason easily about the surroundings. In any case, the capability is not anywhere near that of, of a human. And because of that, I think, you know, the universal communicator is still a little bit away. But having said that, I have not watched Star Trek, so I'm not sure exactly what you <laughs> uh, Yeah, maybe we can call uh, Captain Picard. That, that's, that's really fascinating, fantastic. I appreciate you providing some, some realism, but also uh, indulging the fantasy that maybe this will one day exist. Maybe last question, a bit of a joke, but um, just wondering if you also think that uh, maybe our machines will, will truly get sarcasm and, and humor and you know, all the different tones and emotions that, that humans can experience. I, you know, there's a lot of work on computational humor and it's, it's a really interesting field. But again, you know, I, I, to my mind, you know, when you say really get something, to my mind, it really means that not only would the program identify that there is a humorous element in a sentence, but to really get what this is about, I don't think we're quite there yet, you know, and uh, it's probably going to come after, it, it, I think the prerequisite for fairly elaborate reasoning technology it, it would have to come before really understanding humor that's that's my thought i think it will, will be really interesting you know as, as maybe more and more machines can understand you know what, what do we really need how that might affect communication so yeah i appreciate you sharing that and i actually didn't know that there was work being done on computational humor so that's uh, that's fantastic yeah there is that's quite it's quite nice well lana thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today i really really appreciate it Thank you for inviting me. It's, as I say, the pleasure is mine. It's really, it's an honor. Well, fantastic. And thank you for all the great work you do for Canada and our Indigenous communities. And also for the podcast, thanks as always to our generous sponsors, including Microsoft Canada. Uh, they host a free AI business school where you can learn how to drive business impact by creating an effective AI strategy, enabling an AI-ready culture and innovating responsibly. Our thanks also go out to Sinchi, the global leader in dataware technology that makes data integration obsolete to accelerate hundreds of AI projects. And also thanks to our sponsor, uh, Scriptswell. They are an AI-powered jargon buster tool that simplifies business contracts with simple language and formatting recommendations. And in fact, I think you would find Scriptswell particularly interesting. So uh, <laughs> you might want to check them out. I, I think I will. Oh, fantastic. 
Well, thanks again to you and to all of our listeners. Uh, This has been another episode of the Ask AI podcast, and we wish you all well. Tune in next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Ask AI podcast. The sponsors of this episode were Microsoft Canada, producers of the Free AI Business School, and Cinchi, the dataware platform that makes integration obsolete. The series producer was Chris McClellan. The series editor was James Fajardo. Original music was provided by Mike Letourneau. To learn how to be featured on our podcast and get information about sponsorship and volunteering opportunities, please visit our website at askai.org, send us an email to info at askai.org, or talk to our bot by visiting askai.org forward stroke chatbot.